Okay, it's not ring. Hi, 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 Joe. Cool, right. Playing the opening jingle in five, four, three, two, one. Live from London, this is The Late Show with Noreen Khalid on Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening. The time is eight o'clock. The date is the 16th of February and we are live on Teachers Talk Radio. In the past few years, there has been a great deal of interest in curriculum. On tonight's show, we will be talking to John Thompson and Mary Myatt, who I consider to be experts in this field. So, if you have any questions for them about curriculum, please phone in. Live from London, this is The Late Show with Noreen Khalid on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash LSW slash TT Radio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Good evening, everyone. Warm welcome to you all. Um, hi, John. I can see you've signed in. Hello. Hi. Hi, John. So, so happy and so excited that you could join me tonight. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, just waiting for for Mary to to call in. Um, so it's it's great to have you and and uh, when Mary comes, great will be great to have Mary and great to have all our listeners joining in. Um, teachers Talk Radio, as you know, is a talk show which is for teachers uh, by teachers. Um, it is your show, and I will be delighted to take calls from any of our listeners. Um, and if you've liked our shows and wondered if you could become a part of the team, um, then head over to our website www ttradio.org which has details about how to get in touch with us. The team will be delighted to hear from you and you may become one of our latest latest hosts with a show of your own. So I'm really excited about tonight's show um, because I've got two fabulous guests uh, on tonight, um, Mary Myatt and John Thompson. Now, I doubt there's anyone listening to me who doesn't know and love Mary and John. Um, so I'm going to give the smallest of introductions to them. Um, uh, John first. Uh, John has been a teacher for uh, correct me, John, if I get any of the details. Yeah, right. sure. Um, so John has been a teacher for 32 years, um, and he's been a head teacher for many years as well. He writes a blog called This Much I Know, and he's written extensively about school leadership. He's previously published two books, Love Over Fear, Developing a Culture for Truly Great Teaching, and Mind Over Matter, Improving Mental Health in Our Schools. Uh, his focus has been on improving the quality of teaching and learning at school level and across the whole system. So that's John. Uh, John, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah. What you doing recently? Well, I, I, um, I've written six books now. Wow, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I've also written a book with Johnny Utley called Putting Staff First. I wrote a book during the lockdown with my colleagues at Huntington about cognitive friendship in action in the in the in action series with Tom Sherrington, and Mayor and I are on this project called Huh, um, which is about curriculum conversations between subject and senior leaders, which we've um, 
got a huge amount of traction from. And beside those education books, um, I've written a book about fishing, bizarrely. Um, oh, so there you go. We might we might ask you a bit about that a little later on. <laughs> uh, Mary, I can see you've joined in. Um, if you could just press one of the call buttons, uh, and that that will let you into the studio. Just uh, the the buttons at the top. Um, press any one, and that will let you in. Lovely. There she is. There she is. Hi, Mary. <laughs> Hello there, sorry. I had to reapply to Podbean to get in. Sorry to be late. <laughs> That's all right. No, no, not a problem at all. So we've uh, just started and I'm just telling our listeners that uh, I doubt there's anybody who doesn't know either of you. So I've just done a very basic introduction uh, to John um, and now a few words about you. Um, Mary is an education advisor. She's a writer and a speaker. Uh, Mary trained as an RD teacher and she has worked as a local authority advisor and inspector. She has written extensively about leadership, school improvement, and the curriculum. Um, and Mary has been a governor in three schools, which makes my heart sing with joy, um, and a trustee for multi-academy trust. Um, she's co-founded the RE Quality Mark. She's the chair um, of the board for the Center for Education and Youth. And she's a member of the Curriculum Advisory Group for Oak National Assembly. So, uh, um, Academy, sorry. Welcome, Mary. Oh, well, thank you. It's great to be here. I just praise you that by saying I'm just a mad old bat up a mountain in Wales, but thank you for your warm welcome. <laughs> no, no, you're just being too modest. Um, when I say you've been a presenter, um, anybody who hasn't seen Mary or John for that matter present um, at conferences, the next time you're at a conference and they are uh, presenting, make sure you go and listen to them. Um, anything, you know, my, I have, um, my, slides used to be atrocious before before i saw mary's slides and she's uh, you know you see her slides and you see how how she gets across her message and you know it's it's wonderful so uh, on a personal level i have to thank mary for for giving me tips on how to do presentations at conferences <laughs> thank you okay. uh, right so um let's get started so it's like i said it's a pleasure to have you both um uh, John was just telling us a bit more about uh, what he has been doing. Um, Mary, is there anything you'd like to tell us about your background or what, or any projects you're involved with at the moment? Um, yeah, so one of the latest things I'm working on, and it's still hatching, the elves in the attic are still working on it. Mm -hmm. uh, those are my helpers. Um, is uh, I talk a lot about um, great books underpinning um, new units of work um, where we want children knowing more and remembering more, being able to do more. And so I talk about those quite a lot um, in my sessions and I send the links over to people so that they've got them. But increasingly, I'm getting messages saying, oh, can you suggest a text or a high quality book for this unit and that unit, which I'm always happy to do. But I've decided to actually collate uh, on a web page, um, uh, we're going to call it the, uh, the te Teacher's Collection, I think. I think that's what we're calling it. Anyway, they're doing the artwork for it now. I need to look up what we've decided to call it. Um, and then I'm focusing initially on Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2. So if they've got, if they're teaching, say, about the Great Fire of London in 
uh, in key stage one, year one, which is quite often where it sits, um, to uh, suggest a, a, a decent text for that. Or, you know, if you're teaching, say, about the theory of evolution for the program of study in year six in science, then a high quality text for that as well. So I'm really, really, it's a, it's a joyful piece of work to do that because it gives me a chance to read some great books and then just pull, the, pull those links together. So it's a lovely piece of work. It's probably going to be a really useful resource um, as well, I think. Um, I think you'll have lots of people thanking you for that once uh, the website is up and running. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, okay, so um, um, curriculum. Uh, I think uh, I'd like to talk a lot about curriculum during this hour and a half. Um, recently, school leaders and teachers have been having conversations around curriculum uh, much more than we did in the past. Is that a good thing, John? Yeah, well, I, I'm very sure about why this is a good thing. Mm -hmm. I, I was a senior leader from 1991 to 2021. 30 years as a, as a curriculum leader, as, as a subject, as a senior leader, sorry, um, talking with, talking with um, subject leaders about the curriculum, having those meetings once every half term, year in, year out, and we, all we talked about was meaningless data. And uh, it's just delightful to talk about the curriculum because in the end, what is a school if it's not what you teach and what young children learn? So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm convinced it's the right thing to be doing and I'm, I'm delighted to be helping people have those conversations um, between senior leaders and subject leaders in, in the work that I'm doing with, with Mary at the moment. Mary, would you agree it's, it's, um, that this conversation has been, you know, it's the right time to have this, it's been a long time coming? Yes, I agree, absolutely. I think um, two things, actually, that um, it does slightly annoy me that, um, you know, there's a bit of a tendency in some quarters to talk about, you know, work on the curriculum being a new thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm. schools haven't been doing anything on the curriculum like forever. Um, and, and of course they have, um, but I think, uh, you know, some rebalancing and making sure that priorities are in the right place in terms of curriculum balance and entitlement um, is, is, a, is a good thing. Um, and I think, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a real focus and intellectual energy going into it now, which I think is great, but I, we can't afford not to do it because it's a bit like, um, you know, s someone running a restaurant, owning a restaurant and, you know, not checking on the quality of the ingredients going in. Um, and so taking a closer view on the content, the quality of the content, uh, the way that it is offered to children, supporting them to learn in the best possible conditions um, is, is, I think, really, really healthy. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think it, it is a good time, um, but I think it's wrong to think that nothing has ever happened. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good point. Thank you. Um, earlier today, one of our um, teacher talk radio hosts, um, Sovia, she tweeted that um, they were having some conversations uh, earlier um, and uh, around the fact that sometimes the curriculum appears to be so complicated that everyone looks at it and goes, huh? Now, <laughs> is that 
why is that how the name for the book came oh. about? <laughs> it's it's your it's your call on that, John, because it's it, such it, a great it, reason. It, it, <laughs> I, I think I think it is. So <laughs> so uh, the book the book her came about the whole project came about because about eighteen months ago I was asked no, by a year a, ago. A year ago, John. Yeah, but, but we've turned that, it around really quickly. Be, oh, sorry, before sorry. That, before that, eighteen Shoot months that. ago, I was asked by a head teacher to to hold to help him hold his middle leaders to account for the curriculum, and I said, "How can you how can you hold them to account for the curriculum if you don't know anything about it?" And uh, it kind of set me off on a thing, and I, I emailed Mary. I think it was a year ago this week, and I said, "I've got this idea." And the idea is for a book, and essentially the working title was um, The Middle Leaders Curriculum Book um, Guide for Senior Leaders about um, what they need to know about each subject on the national curriculum. And it, it came to me because I spent 30 years talking about data and never having a conversation about the curriculum. And I, I line manage languages at Huntington for the last eight years, and I have a CSE grade one in German that I got in 1980, which is equivalent for people who weren't born then to a grade C at GCSE. And um, I was line managing a woman who got a double first in German from Cambridge, uh, in German and Russian from Cambridge. And uh, I was a chocolate teapot in terms of helping her develop the curriculum. Because one... I couldn't support her. I mean, I know that Brighton means I travel to Brighton on the train, but that's as far as my German goes. Um, and secondly, whatever she said about the curriculum, I had to take as read. Okay. So from my point of view, I couldn't support her, nor could I challenge her. So the book came about, and we, we interviewed 19 subject leaders, and two senior leaders, and I, you know, Mary was brilliant. Mary said, "Look, it's a great idea. Let's interview people. Let's film them on Zoom. Let's record it. Let's transcribe it. Let's pare down the transcriptions of the interviews into three thousand word chunks. Every one of those will be a chapter. Nineteen subject leaders, two senior leaders. There was the book, um, and then we went back to the title. And now I didn't know that Mary Meyer was." One, I, I think I probably knew, Mary, that you had a degree in classics, in, in the classics, but I didn't know that you were um, originally 40 years ago in charge of marketing for the families, for the Myatt family, or for, for your families, um, your mum and dad's families, ice cream business. Okay, so she was a brilliant marketeer, and if you've ever worked with Mary, um, you know that everything has to be absolutely precisely brilliant. So she said, we've got a great a great thing here. We need a really good title for the book, and your title won't watch. Um, so I came up with the Janus conversations. Janus is the god with two faces, looking backwards and forwards, <laughs> like January. Um, Jeff Barton recently said, thank goodness you didn't call it the Janus conversations. Um <laughs> And then I, but everybody we spoke to, everybody, bar none, said that the curriculum is an ongoing conversation. It's an ongoing thing that we're doing all the time. It's an endless thing. So one Saturday afternoon, I was in my office and I thought, endlessness. Let's look at the God, endlessness. And the God of endlessness is a God, an Egyptian God called Hur. 
and he is the god of endlessness, creativity, fertility, and regeneration. And we thought that was a great god for the god of the curriculum. So that's how the book became known as Huh. It's also it's also my response when I go into a year eight German class, obviously. <laughs> oh, that's that's such. It's, thank you for sharing with that with us. It's that's brilliant. It's uh, really lovely to know how how that. It's a lovely story, Noreen. It's a lovely story. You know, it came out of nowhere. And, yeah. and, and what was interesting was I'd emailed, I, I think I DM'd Mary. So I've had a few ideas. What about her? And the next conversation we had on Zoom, she was unbearably excited about it. She thought it's exactly the right thing. And, it, and it's been great. It's been a great, it's a great, it makes people wonder what on earth it is and get interested in the thing. No, that's that's really true. Now, thank you for sharing book came about um, and not only how the name came about. Um, so moving on now, it's um, as, as you, all of us are aware that it's not only school staff uh, think about curriculum who, uh, who have these conversations around curriculum. Um, Ofstitch too is now having lots of conversations around the curriculum in a way which I suppose they didn't last. Um, in fact, I mean, the the inspections I've been part of in the past, I wasn't asked anything around curriculum, uh, which I have been in the last two uh, I've had. Um, do you think this is a welcome change of direction, if I can call it that, by them or not? Uh, Mary? Um, yeah, I th yes, I do. <laughs> um, I, I think this is the latest framework, the, 2000, the EIF of 2019, I think is uh, the most balanced um, and the most focused uh, on the stuff that's going to make a difference to children's learning. Um, I think there's very welcome shifts in um, the focus on children being taught concepts and big ideas that they know more and remember more and can do more over time. This is all sen really sensible stuff. Um, and the fact it's in a framework in, work in the quality of education judgment means that, uh, that that has a higher profile. So that seems to me to be a very sensible thing. And, you know, whether we like it or not, um, regulators in any sector do drive behaviours. And so I think that that is healthy. Um, a further thing that I think is is um, positive within the framework um, is and they talk about uh, assessment and, and how their focus is on um, the use of assessment to um, inform the teacher's practice, uh, to adjust their teaching um, in the light of discussions in the classroom based on what you know children are showing and, and talking about. Um, and also in terms of um, not just it in, informing teaching, but actually um, moving children's learning on, cha changing them as learners. So this sort of deep, uh, deep practice, um, absolutely in the spirit of um, Dylan Williams and, and Paul Black's work. Um, and also notable that they're not going to look at any internally generated school data. Yeah. And that is very helpful um, because they've realized long lost <laughs> internally generated school data 
is neither valid nor reliable. And so you've got you've cut through a whole swathe of um, number uh, harvesting for an external audience, and they're not going to consider it. Um, so I think that's I think that is a very good thing. That doesn't mean that schools are no longer collecting. They need to be collecting information, but um, there are too many who are still sticking stuff in spreadsheets, turning key performance indicators green on the basis of um, you know, very scant information. So I, I, I think there's far more conversation and discussion to be had about that because there's an awful lot of time wasted for stuff that doesn't tell us anything. Um, but on the negative side, um, I think there is a tendency in some parts of the quarters, some parts of the sector to, to be uh, driving behaviours where senior leaders are asking themselves and their staff, well, what are Ofsted looking for? Yeah. And the fact is they've made it very clear, very clear, they're not looking for anything. They're looking at what schools are doing. I mean, beyond safeguarding, which is, you know, that's, you know, you have to look for stuff in safeguarding, make sure that's in place and, and systems and processes. Well, but otherwise, there's conversation. And I just worry that um, the audience is directed towards adults as opposed to, um, you know, what children need and focusing on that. Because we get it right for them in terms of the plans we develop and the way we um, implement it in the classroom. It follows that any adult checking on whether that's making any difference will be able to work it out. And I would say if they can't do that, they shouldn't be doing the job. So I, I think there, there's some, there are some distorted behaviours where it's a sort of knee-jerk reaction and wanting to sort of get quick fixes and silver bullets in place. But overall, I'm, I'm, I think it's a very positive move, yeah. Thank you. Um, John, as a head teacher, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think, I think the big challenge is around assessment. I think people are still concerned about how, how you use the curriculum as the progression model in terms of assessment, because people are so wedded in the kind of output model that we've got so used to um, over the last two decades and the accountability system we got so used to, to wanting numbers on a spreadsheet somehow. And that goes all the way through the system. You know, that's senior leaders, head teachers, subject leaders, governors, and breaking away from that has been has been really hard so i think there are some there are some challenges for schools to get an assessment system that is fit for purpose where you're using assessment um really going back to dylan william back to 98 back to inside the black box where you're using it to support the improvement in teaching and learning rather than some accountability system that is actually nonsensical and i i look back now you know, 18 years as a head teacher, 33 years as teaching in teaching, um, and I and I'm kind of a bit dismayed at some of the some of the some of the data stuff that was was completely meaningless and, and wasted my life and my hours of my life and hours of my colleagues' lives that meant nothing. And I feel we're in a much better spot now. We just need to get this assessment bit right. So I think there were, you know I was talking today to Dimish Lad um, about the work they're doing, and it's really great. And, and they're using assessment in a way that's completely constructive and supporting the quality of teaching and learning. And you go back to what Dylan Williams said in 1998, Inside the Black Box, where he talked about 
assessment for learning, which he now wishes he'd called responsive teaching or adaptive teaching. You know, what is the, what's, what's the assessment telling us about what our children have learned, about what we've taught them? And then how does that affect how we then teach? Do we go over it again? Do we teach it in a different way? But it's certainly not um, using assessment for accountability purposes, um, which has been proven to be completely and utterly flawed and a waste of time. That's very true. Um, you know, when, when levels went, um, we, we brought in, you know, things which were previously known as levels. Um, they weren't called levels, but I think this, they were still levels. They kind of were. Yeah, they were levels. They were called steps or, or mini steps or whatever, but they were levels in, you know, by another name. Um, and I think looking at um, focusing on the curriculum may have moved us away from, from levels. Do you think that's that's a fair assessment? Mary? Uh, it's not yet fully embedded in the, se no. in the sector. No. Um, and, and, you know, it sounds very simple to say, you know, the curriculum itself is the progression model. And I think that there is a, uh, there is a very simple view of that, also a very profound one. Basically, I've taught this unit, have my children got it, how do I know? Um, and I think... I think um, I think there's lots going on there. I think the sector as a whole is very conservative with a small C. Um, I think it, uh, it it takes a while to shift away from behaviours, and it's never a blame game. But we kind of got to we kind of got to remember, you know, the cur the curriculum, the national curriculum, was written in 2013 for implementation in 2014, and here we are in 2022, and yet we've still got um, a, a lot of primary schools talking about uh, the steps or, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's le it's levels language just been rebranded. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's actually dishonest. I don't think individuals are dishonest. I think it's a dishonesty at the systems level. Yeah. Um, and it's because we're conservative with a small C that no one's really grasped that. And also we haven't got anything neat to put in place I tell you, I've been working on this for about two years, and I'm still struggling. I do yeah. have I do have some messy solutions. Um, the other thing, though, in secondary is um, you've still got the nonsense in masses of secondary schools of children being set targets in year seven, yes. um, where uh, based. On. I've got I've got quite a lot of background noise. Is it my end or is someone opening a can of beans? No, I don't uh, think so. Oh, sorry. It must be the wind, my end then. It's very windy. So anyway, sorry if it's coming through. Yours. Um. Anyway, um. Then you've got you've got um. Yeah. So you've got these children set these targets from year seven, based on a very very narrow database, uh, of key stage two. Sats, and then you've sometimes amplified with, um, you know, some other other measures, cats, cat scores, and things like that. Um, and this is terribly, this is terribly damaging for both children's prospects and also for the curriculum, um, because it, you know that kind of system, those kind of systems in place distort curriculum provision because mm -hmm. you're saying, is this child on track to, you know, to get a level five, um, four or five years later? It's like, well, how would I know mm -hmm. 
if I'm not teaching the GCSE material. I shouldn't be teaching GCSE at Key Stage 3. So there's so many problems with that. And so two things on the back of that. Uh, one is, in relation to that, I would just say, scrap targets. Seriously, scrap them. And just teach everyone. Just give everyone a nine as a target. Because if we, if we, if we taught every child as though they were going to get the top grade at GCSE. They're not all going to get them, obviously, but far more of them will. Yes. And, um, you know, there's a real danger that, you know, a child who maybe, you know, it, when SATs were a thing, they're going to come back again, as we know. But say in 2019, they were based on 2019 SATs results, uh, those targets. But, um, you know, one pupil's Grandpa died a few days before the SAT. So they were depressed. You know, the, the, the results were depressed. They didn't perform as they should have done. So then schools might say, well, we, do, we test them again when they come in at the beginning of year seven. Yeah, but they might have had a cold the week before and grandma's in hospital. And so on the, the basis of those depressed results, that child is only um, given a target of, of, say, four or five, when actually it should be an eight or a nine. And then the other thing that drives me nuts when people use the fish use the Fisher Family Trust data and they talk about them as though they say the Fisher Family Trust targets, they're not targets, they never have been, they're estimates. Yes. And if you look at a scattergraph of, you know, what a child um has got the potential to get, uh, you know, across a range, it, it you know, a child might have a five percent chance of getting a seven or eight at GCSE um, from actually a very low base. Well, why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I um, teach that child as though they're going to get that? They might not get it, but they're more likely to. Um, and the other thing which you know, um, Becky Allen has pointed out is that if you're doing, if you're doing this nonsense, tra nonsense tracking, I mean, it takes up so much time, just ridiculous. But the child who maybe had a target of six and they're in year eight, no, they've got targets. Yeah, say to get grade six at GCSE, they're in year eight. They're not performing that well. But you've got another child who's working at the same level. But somehow that's deemed except who's going to get the interventions It's going to be the high prior retaining child. So there's all sorts of difficulties and inequities built into the system. And so just to wrap this bit up, you know, I, I come back to what Tim Oates um, said you know who led on the review for the for the national curriculum and he's talking talked a lot about this and he said we've got some insights into whether our pupils and students have learnt what was intended through the things they produce so we might then ask ourselves what are the things we that children produce about which we can make some judgments and of course it's things like extended writing uh the uh low stakes quizzes just conversations around them the way they talk about what they've learned and anything they produce, you know, anything that they produce, you know, artwork or, you know, develop skills in PE or whatever. So it's that range of much richer material that actually informs us, not these arbitrary numbers, yes. which have a status which is deeply flawed. Um, but I recognise the problems in terms of stripping all those out because people do need to know how kids are getting on. It's like governors and trustees need to know. Um, but I, th I think there are ways around that and that's what I'm spending quite a lot of time thinking about. Thank you. Thank you. Very much. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, we are going to take a quick 
uh, break uh, for the news and for the ads. Um, and as soon as the, we've, we've heard the, this week's latest education news, we'll be back and we'll continue our conversation about the curriculum with John and Mary. So over to the news desk. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N.co.uk. Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland full free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. The NAS UWT Union has reported that pressure on teachers across Wales is increasing as the exam season approaches. Neil Butler from the union said, I see and speak to teachers most days and they report to me that they are absolutely exhausted. On top of this, the Welsh Government has said we're launching into an entirely new curriculum in September. It's been very difficult to be able to concentrate on those needs when basically holding the whole ship together has been the priority. There's a lot of work being done on the mental health and well-being of the learners.
but precious little on teachers and support staff. And I think the response will be that a lot of teachers will just get out. The Education Minister, Jeremy Miles, explained that teachers have been asked to do more than during normal times and said, we've set ourselves the goal of trying to give a couple of weeks notice of changes when that's been possible. But there have been times when that just wasn't possible. I do recognise how challenging this is. In England, Ofqual has stated that grade boundaries were likely to be lowered to account for the loss of learning. An East Midlands education body has, however, indicated that this may not be the most effective way to mitigate the impact of the pandemic. Nick Rain, Senior Regional Officer at the National Education Union East Midlands, said, My interpretation was somewhat different. What they're going to do is they're giving people more vindication of what may or may not be on the examinations because students have missed so much. Some of the reports in newspapers are actually inaccurate. I mean, I don't think anyone reasonable is going to suggest when students have missed weeks and weeks and weeks in cases of learning with a teacher that they're going to be able to sit exactly the same examination as people in previous years who didn't. Obviously, it just doesn't make any common sense, so that's the reality of the situation. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, for some it's half time, for others there's another week to wait. Today I'm going to talk about a YouTube hack. We all know there are some great explanation videos out there, but sometimes we just want to use a short clip, not the whole thing. Did you know you can save a link to start at a time that you specify? If you didn't, here's the simplest way to do it. Go to the YouTube video you want and pause where you want to start. Hover the pointer over the red line that shows where you're up to in the video and a red circle will appear. Right click on the red circle and a menu pops up. On the menu, select copy video URL at current time. Now you have a link that will take you to that time in the video. Okay, now we can start a video at any time we want. There is a way to use this to our advantage. I don't know about you, but the ads at the start of some clips can be rather annoying. If you start your video one second in, using the method just described, more often than not, you'll avoid having to sit through the adverts. Please remember to keep yourself safe. Anyone can upload anything to sites like YouTube. Please make sure you have watched the whole clip yourself before playing it in the classroom. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. We... Just before we broke for the news and ads um, and the tech um, briefing, we were chatting to Mary Myatt and John Tomsett. We were 
chat talking about curriculum assessment, uh, target grades even. Um, so we're just going to continue our conversations now. Um, John, we, we were talking a bit about uh, Ofsted and the new framework. Um, has that led um, to some, shall we say, not very good practice in some schools? Um, are we seeing schools publishing really complex intent statements? Um, are we seeing people offering their services to schools um, that, you know, I'll come in and I'll write your intent statement for you, which you can publish um, on your website. So when Ofsted come, you've, you, can sh you can present your website to them and they'll know that you're doing what what Ofsted expects you to do. Is, is that happening or is that, or am I being unfair? Um, I, I would say, well, this is this is my take on it really, is that we'd, we'd be disingenuous if we didn't say that the focus on curriculum has been sparked and driven to some extent by the changes to the framework and, and Amanda Spillman's in, intense scrutiny of the curriculum, and I think that's absolutely fine. Um, I, there's a few things that, that kind of worry me, really, because you know, I was in conversation with Dylan William recently, and Dylan William was, was talking about the one thing that drives teachers, the most important thing about teachers' lives is opportunity cost. Okay, so um, if I'm doing something with my time, I can't be doing something else. And he said, you know, you've got to make sure that whatever you're doing is improving the quality of teaching and learning and the curriculum in your school. And even if it is, is there something you might be doing that would have more impact? So you always have to ha be asking yourself that question. Is what I'm doing going to improve the quality of teaching and learning and improve young people's progress in their learning? That's absolutely key. So Spending hours and hours and hours of writing in, you know, intense statements or whatever it might be um, might be a bit of a waste of time because I'm slightly shocked when I go around schools and I find that people don't know the purpose of study in the national curriculum. Uh, if you read the purposes of study for each subject in the national curriculum, they're really quite good. <laughs> they're, they're a really good sort of intense statement, actually, about why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and interestingly, however, right, because there's always two sides to things, aren't there? We were having a conversation the other day with Nick Hart, who I admire greatly for his thinking and his wisdom about the curriculum, about how to lead schools. And he was saying that, you know, yeah, I've been there. I've been writing intense statements. I know the national curriculum purposes of study. But also, the, the process of writing those intense statements with your department is a process you probably need to go through. It's a process that allows you to exchange ideas about, about the curriculum and to come to some kind of common agreement about why we're doing what we're doing, when we're doing it, to you know for which children so there's there's always two sides to it so that's one thing the one thing that i think i really get upset by is the really fancy wall displays 
of some road and the curriculum that's happening down the road from year seven, year eight, year nine, or year two, year three, year four, year five, year six, that must have taken poor teachers absolutely hours and hours and hours to produce. And they just get wrecked as kids line up outside the door ready to go into the lesson and no one ever looks at them. So you look at those types of things, I think they're nonsensical in terms of the opportunity costing. I think there's probably probably some good kind of processes that people go to go through as as, as phase leaders or 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 subject leaders about understanding what the intent is of what they're trying to do and then thinking through implementation and then impact. So it's probably, I, I, I most things, I, uh, Noreen, I take a little route of things. You know, I, I won't condemn people. Um, I've seen stuff go on that's good and I've seen stuff that go on, I think actually just use the national curriculum purposes of study, they're really, really quite decent. Would you agree maybe with that? Or, um... Yes, I'd, I'd absolutely echo that. And, and um, I, I do similar as well, because there's been a tendency in the past to go to the national curriculum documents and go straight into the programmes of study in terms of what needs to be taught. But actually, it's really important to read those in the purpose of study at the beginning, um, because that is where you get the overall picture, you get... Um, a summary of the distinct contribution that that subject is going to make to a child's development. And it's a really, really good starting point for discussion when people are, 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 you know, are revisiting or starting this work. So instead of going straight into the detail, and that's why we get an atomized, incoherent curriculum, Mm -hmm. because that bit that needs to precede it is the discussion about, well, why this subject? Well, What's unique about this subject? What's magical about it? What would children be missing out on if they came to school and they weren't taught this subject? And um, and then what happens then is that people start having a much more expansive view of the subjects as individual treasure troves in their own right, rather than just being taking a reductionist, instrumentalist view in terms of, well, they need this so they get good res- exam results. It, Good, strong qualifications are really, really important. But the curriculum is more than either prepping children for SATs or Mm -hmm. for them getting good grades. It's this much bigger picture. And if we we take that view and actually get it right at key stage three, um, there's far more likelihood of them them getting, you know, getting stronger results down the road. And in fact, I I take it so strongly that um, actually on my website, um, under resources, I've got um, an area on subjects where people can click through where I've pulled together um, high quality links to get high quality resources, um, but also a commentary on the curriculum. And it always starts with the purpose of education uh, Mm. for that subject. Um, And then each of the books, um, we we include those at the backs of the books as well. And people find them incredibly helpful having them distilled like that. But I, I think... That has been part of the missing link about uh, getting intent to a more imaginative place rather than just sort of whopping something down, you know, just quickly to get it done. It's not actually writing it down. It's actually the conversations that are important, I think. Hmm. 
So, so if you're doing an intent um, because you're having a conversations in your department with your head of department, uh, with your staff about why you're teaching, what you're teaching, how you will be teaching it, that's 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 a good conversations to have. But if you're writing an intent statement just to put it on the wall, as John says, or to stick it on the website for Ofsted, then that's not really helpful. No, and they don't expect yeah. to see it there either. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they do expect you to be able to have a conversation about it. And, yes. and actually, that's that's the thing. You know, if you say to people, ask people what the school's priorities are, <laughs> they can't tell you. Yeah. It means there's too many of them and they haven't been talked about. You know, it's not their fault. It's just like we've got, we've got to thrash things out in a way that people really, really have this stuff, uh, you know, in their hearts and intellects rather than just... Um, you know, trying to trying to second guess what Ofsted are wanting. Right. Um, so if we now start to look at the nitty gritty of the, the curriculum work, um, if um, if I was to say to you, John and Mary, that I'm thinking of setting up a school and I'd like you to uh, advise me on how to, how do I go about planning my curriculum? How do I go about designing my curriculum for my new school? Uh, where, how, what would you advise me? Where would, I, where would you say I should go? How should I start? Right, so I'll, I'll, I'll start, Mary, and then you, uh, and then I'll, I'll hand over to you. But I, I've, we've been doing some conversations for the primary half, um, and I've been really taken by John Hutchinson at Reach Feltham as the curriculum designer for their curriculum, which is their, their cradle-to-career curriculum. So they're a through school, they have early years, um, and they go all the way through to A-level. And they set their curriculum up by asking a single question. The single question was, it's a brilliant question. Okay, so we expect every child who comes in in early years to get an A-star at A-level in any subject they want to. And if you take that as your starting point, what do they need to know at 18 to get an A star? Then what do they need to know at 16? What do they need to know at 14? What do they need to know at 11? What do they need to know at 5? What do they need to know at 3? All the way down into early years. It's absolutely brilliant as a way of thinking about how you structure your curriculum in every subject. And uh, it seems to me a really great starting point. If you've got no other starting point, that's a pretty decent one. And then what John does is, is relentlessly visit other schools and look at what other things are going on in other schools and compare the curriculum at Rich Feltham with every other curriculum he can find and then tweaks and refines their curriculum according to the best that they can find in the country always with the idea that they want to have a rich, challenging, ambitious curriculum that is going to get an A-star for every child when they finish that subject. And I think, it, you know, as a way of shaping your curriculum with that high aspiration, I don't know what's better, really. Thank you. Thanks, Don. Mary? Yeah, so <laughs> I, I love John Hutchinson's so, approach, and it's a, it's a living you know, it's such a living piece of work, mm-hmm. um, what John and, and colleagues are doing at Reach Felton. But it was interesting because I, I, you know, I've heard him speak lots of times and we've had a number of conversations, John Hutchinson and I. And um, several years ago, before lockdown, we were we were having a chinwag um, at one of the conferences. And um, I was talking to him about his work and congratulating him. And he said, yeah, we've been doing it for about 
three years now. We thought we would have had it polished and sorted by now. <laughs> he said, we haven't. <laughs> that was that was three or four years ago. And it's just so encouraging that because, you know, these people, some of these people are working at the top of their game, yeah. like John. Um, it is continually being refined. Um, and actually, I was looking at um, Stanley Road Primary School um, in the in the northwest um, where Andrew Percival works. I was looking at that yesterday because they have got um, some amazing curriculum plans on their website. But there's this great caveat. We're still working on this and some are more developed than others. But I tell you, if you were a school that was starting out, you'd have a look at that and say, oh, some jolly good stuff here. Um, but why are they making it public? Because you know, they've, they've worked up interesting stuff. They want to make it available to other people. Similarly, a lot of um, Reach Felton's work as well. Similarly, the, um, you know, the, the, not, the powerful knowledge schools as well are doing um, powerful curriculum schools, Alex Pethick's work and others. Um, uh, School 21, you know, they have huge amounts of information on their websites. And these have come from... Um, a highly dialogic process of talking about it together and then and getting it down on on a few documents. So this, it's really beautiful stuff. So if I was starting a new, or advising someone who's starting a new school, I'd say, look at what's out there. Um, so if it's a completely new school and um, so it's not going to be a maintained school, of course there's um, significant additional advantages to that in terms of curriculum freedoms. But actually, what I've noticed is that um, whether a school is an academy or a maintained school, they pretty much follow the national curriculum. Uh, and if you don't follow the national curriculum, it has to be at least as ambitious um, as the national curriculum. Um, but of course, a curriculum is bigger than the stuff that's written on the, the DfE documents. Yeah. Uh, and that's been made clear from all sorts of quarters, not least the DfE. But, you know, people like um, Dylan William have been banging that drum for a long time, and as, as have many others. So that extra way of how the intended curriculum is then enacted is where we've got a great deal of um, professional discernment and um, decision-making to go in there. What I would say is important, actually two, th a number of things. So one is, as we're thinking about the community from which our children uh, join our school, um, I think it's useful to consider what are some of the things that they might be missing within that community. And I'm not just talking about low socioeconomic areas. Yeah. Um, it, we, might have, we might have come to the conclusion that many of them, um, you know, don't have very sophisticated language, good listening skills, um, or able to articulate themselves well. So if we've identified that, then that would be reasonable, it seems to me, to include that within the way of thinking about the curriculum that we privilege language, we privilege talk, we privilege dialogic and, um, um, you know, contested talk in a, in, a, in, a friendly, in a friendly way, but needs lots of structures around it. Now, if we were interested in doing that, a great example to look at would be uh, School 21, mm -hmm. where their curriculum, as we know, is underpinned by the concepts of head, which is the intellect, the heart, which is not in a soppy way, but it's tapping into the um, notion that all of us wants to make, each of us wants to make a contribution uh, to the people around us, to our communities. So on the back of that, they have the most amazing 
opportunities for children to make a, a contribution. And then hand. So they have opportunities to produce things, you know, the Ron Berger's um, beautiful work. Now, so they're a very carefully thought through curriculum position. However, it is powered through talk. It's powered through talk. So they are it's three to 19. So it's a philosophy for children's school, Harkness debates in secondary, um, storytelling school, um, masses and masses going on there that brings the curriculum alive through talk. So you could have a model like that that you could take inspiration from if that's what you'd identified might be missing from your children. You might, you might also have identified that um, some children are coming to school with attitudes to people who are different from them um, in a slightly negative way. And it's never a blame game. They're picking this up from maybe some of their communities or, or whatever. Now, I don't think, and I'm very happy to be challenged on this, I don't think you move the agenda on by telling someone that they are prejudiced or racist. Mm. I think that what you do is you offer them materials in which um, less than uh, humane attitudes to other people is kind of exposed. Um, and so people come to realise themselves that there might be other points of view. And so then, if that was the case, you know, I'd consider including within the curriculum Lifter, um, Serdit Ferdar's work, world-class documentaries about individuals and communities from around the world, but also with different um, characteristics. Uh, you know, it's just jaw-droppingly fascinating. But at the heart of this work is it helps us as individuals, whether adults or students and pupils, to see things from the individual, from a new perspective through, th through the eyes of others, which is far more productive and just saying that is not a healthy way to talk about it. And so you've got to challenge absolute, obviously, yeah. racist behaviour and language, et cetera. But if we're trying to get this embedded within the curriculum. So it's about thinking carefully about what the community might be missing, not in a deficit way, but saying, well, we could include something like that. And then I think the flip side of that is to say, well, what, what is there in this local community that we can draw on? So places of local historical interest, places of worship, you know, geographical insights. This starts making it unique to that particular community. And then thinking about, you know, what are some of the great gifts within the um, families as well? So a lovely example from that, and I'll, then I'll wrap up, is um, uh, a great school in Birmingham in Smethwick, um, really high-performing school, really poor part of Birmingham. High proportion of the children living in households where English hadn't been spoken for several generations. Um, now, instead of seeing that as a deficit model, what are we going to do about these families? They, they flipped it and they said, well, what are some of the things we could learn from these families? And so wonderful programs. Of, so they identified cuisine and spices. Mm -hmm. And so programs to, that are actually embedded within the curriculum, but also as part of it, a, a social enterprise where they, the children sell spices. Mm -hmm. and things. So you're celebrating what that is rather than sort of closing people out. So I think there's masses of ways that this can go. It's really, really exciting. So, so look, you've, you've sort of uh, preempted my next question was, um, you know, looking at the curriculum in, in light of, of the context of the school and the community it serves and, um, and taking that into consideration while you're sitting and um, thinking about what to include, what to leave out, how to include it uh, and what depth to go into. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. 
thinking about curriculum now, um, whenever we hear, especially nowadays, whenever we are talking about or hearing a discussion on curriculum, it soon turns into, uh, we soon hear that ne the necessity of having a broad and balanced curriculum. Uh, but what is a broad and balanced curriculum? I think you've, you have sort of answered that a bit uh, previously as well, but um, how, how do we ensure it's broad and balanced and broad and balanced by whose standards? So, so I'm happy to tackle this first and then open it up to John. So um, I mean, it's a bit motherhood and apple pie, really, isn't it? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, but I, I think on the back of that, we can ask who, who, wants, who wants a narrow and unbalanced curriculum? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, uh, and so I think, um, I think there's some, I think there's some, quite low-hanging fruit that we can we can use that lens to um, hold up our provision and practice to account. So for instance, um, you know, in, in, in some primary schools, and again, it's not, a, it's never a blame game. These are sort of pressures that are coming from lots of places, but what happens in lots of primary schools is children get a diet of SATs practice in year six, pretty much, sometimes drifting into year five. Um, in the mistaken belief that that is going to get better results at the end of year six. Actually, if you look at the reading papers for the last year for which we have any data, 2019, the children who didn't do so well in those reading papers, it tended to be a lack of vocabulary. Yeah. So how do we develop children's vocabulary? Mm -hmm. It's a report and balanced curriculum. Yes. So, um, and it, it, it's, it's, it's just a shame. You can understand the pressures there, but you, we've got to think of it is in a bigger picture, and that means it's broad and balanced. I would also say, and this is about balancing priorities as well, because uh, they have become distorted in some parts of the sector. And again, it's never a claim game, but once we realise we need to be thinking about how we shift it back. But the fact that we've got about 50% of secondary schools who have three-year key stage four and only two years at key stage three. Yes. Now, you can see how that's happened because the content is, um, it, there's more content, there are greater demands on students. You can, you can see how the argument's been made that we need more time. Um, however, <laughs> students are entitled to a broad and balanced curriculum, the national curriculum to the end of key stage three, which is year nine. So we can ask some quite, um, you know, some quite basic questions on the back of a broad and balanced curriculum. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I think one of the things that's, you know, John and I've been talking a lot about is actually, if you get key stage three, right. Um, we refer to it as the intellectual powerhouse of the mm. school. If you get that right with all the big, exciting ideas, plenty of practice, extended writing at you know, high level talk above, you know, and materials above students' pay grade, unpacked by the teacher, you know, lots falls into place, then they've got, a, they've got a really great springboard for key stage four. So I'd be interpreting the broad and balanced curriculum in terms of actually asking myself some questions about is what I'm offering simply geared towards outcomes? Or am I going to offer something richer? Because actually all the evidence is they're going to get better outcomes in any case. So that's my view on it. Thank you. That's um, if any governors are listening in, um, Mary's just given you some really interesting and 
important questions which you could ask as governors um, when you have your meeting for standards or your curriculum meeting and really get to the to the heart of what's being taught in your schools. John, would you like to expand on that a bit? But, yeah, we've been talking about the TCA3 curriculum when we first um, got embarked upon the HERP project, and we interviewed people about TCA3 because we thought TCA3 there's there's where you've got some flexibility about what you what you deliver. However, um, we emphasise hugely how there are two reasons why stage 3 has to be absolutely super duper, right? It has to be absolutely great. Um, and really challenging and really aspirational and really ambitious. And the first one, which is the least important one, I think, but is important to many people, and I'm, yeah, I'm a head teacher, been here, seen it, done it, um, is that if you get Key Stage 3 right, then Key Stage 4 is much easier, right? Is You get three years of Key Stage 3, a really challenging, rich, ambitious curriculum. Then when young people embark upon their GCSEs, they're really well prepared and they can move into from, from key stage four to key stage five really well. But secondly, it's really important for the young people who don't take perhaps geography, for instance, onto GCSE, right? Because the last lesson they have in year nine is the last lesson they may ever have of geography. So it better be damn well rich and challenging um, and not a fob off. And that's why I find it really hard when you look at some of the uh, of the programs of study for key st for key stage three. I find it really hard to find a school that justifies what they do at key stage three in two years. Uh, that's enough depth. That's the depth of learning that you want these young people to have, who won't be taking it beyond year eight. You know. You know, geography, you may end your geography in year eight and never have a geography lesson again. So how do you reach the depth and the breadth of learning in geography in just two years? You know, and we spoke to Dr. David Priest, who was absolutely brilliant um, when we, did, when we um, interviewed him for the, for the first her book. And he was fascinating. And he said, one of, one of the really interesting things to do is to ask the subject leader of geography, where are the where are their um, kind of case studies taken from across the globe, and and plot them across the globe? Right, are they all African? Right, do they look at the seven? Do they look at all the continents? Are they really? the breadth you want young people to have about the way the world is composed um, and the geographical elements to it that you'd really want them to know and the fundamentals of the subject. Is there a spread? You know, is Bangladesh always held up as a place where you have lots of floods? Right? Or is there something more? And it's really interesting when you get into the, the detail of the subject and how much the space and place and, and, and human and physical combine all those things. And, you know, if you're not delivering a really good curriculum, a really rich uh, 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 and challenging curriculum and ambitious, then you're really not doing our young people um, 
best service really and I, and I think that's the heart of what I feel about it is that you know these young people who don't follow it onto GCSE really deserve a rich and challenging curriculum at least stage three. Thank you. Um, Joe who's listening in has just texted in that um, yep and then you end up leading geography when you become a primary teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that brings me actually, Job's very kind, of, uh, you know, she's brought me on to my next question, which is um, the difference between the primary and secondary curriculum. Mm. Um, apart from the obvious differences, um, are there any other differences, in, especially about curriculum planning um, between primary and secondary? Well, we've been really fascinated, Mary, haven't we, by our interviews for the primary Herp book. Um, and we have so much unbelievably brilliant material that we are actually publishing a book in, in on the 25th of April, which is the subjects, the individual subjects at primary, um, the curriculum development with the brilliant people we've interviewed for those. And then we're going to publish another primary book in June, which is the bigger picture of, of leadership of the whole curriculum, you know, what it's like to deliver and design a curriculum for mixed age groups, what it's like to look at a curriculum for a through school, uh, all those different kind of bigger timetabling, those kind of issues. Um, so you've got two books coming out. And yeah, I, I've, I've been blown away by the conversations I've had with, with people. I've learned so much. And I look back now, and I, I regretted not having curriculum conversations with my secondary colleagues in the last 30 years. But I wish I'd also had curriculum conversations with primary. Because for anybody working in secondary, you really need to know what they're doing at primary. Um, I think it's absolutely crucial. And so things like you know, mathematics has been phenomenal with, with Emma Turner. Um, and understanding it's not just where things happen on the curriculum and where there might be a curriculum plan, but how you teach them. Having a policy for place value for the four operations, for how you teach fractions, how you teach decimals, is absolutely crucial. And... I've, I've been fascinated by early years and talking to Julian Grenier about how um, just the orchestration of, of all the things you have to get right at the right moments to teach young people how to write, mm. right? <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and I wish I'd known that stuff as a secondary head. Um, and I would now, you know, I, I began my career post-16, they had no invest everything in early years. Because early years, if, you, if they don't get it in early years, then you're playing catch-up for the rest of their school careers. So, you know, go look at all those different things. There's so much that secondary people don't understand about the curriculum of primary that you re would really enhance um, how, you approach, how, how you approach curriculum development in secondary. It's, it's phenomenal. Um, I'm just in... It, and, and, and really, in the true sense of the word, in awe of what they do at primary school. Um, there's a question for both you, John, and, and Mary from Joe, who's listening in. Um, she says, my question would be, what can you do in a small school where you are leading three or four subjects? Mary? Yeah. So I, I think you... This is one of the biggest differences between secondary and primary because in there's more um, secondaries are more similar than they are dissimilar uh you know 
the, 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 the structured pretty much on similar lines. You have your departments or your faculties, you have your subject leader, and, you know, and, and most departments have more than one other person. You're very unlucky. Well, no, it's very unusual in secondary to be teaching more than two, maximum three subjects, you know, where you're filling in gaps for other, for other people. In, in primary, you are teaching between 10 and 12 you know, you might have you might have some PPA time when it, you know sport, a sports a PE specialist or music or whatever is sometimes you know you've got provision for that. Now um, and then on top of that, you've got colleagues in primary who are, as as Joe has indicated, uh, leading on several subjects. Now I think we've got to remember here that we're human beings first, and we're professional second, and that this work has to be done over time. And we can't have everything as a priority. So we just have to let some things either tread water or just be okay while we, while we work up the thinking and the, the plans for one of the subjects. Um, and, and to do them in a sort of carousel way. Because I tell you why, no child is going to die because you know, the geography plans weren't quite up to speed. <laughs> you know, got to be, real, be realistic about this. Um, and then also for some, there are some legitimate shortcuts that I think we can use. So, you know, if we know, there's quite a lot of evidence from psychology and cognitive science that our brains privilege story. We know more and remember more if we've heard it in a story. So if I'm um, working with colleagues who have got more than one subject and they're having to think about priorities, I said, well, if you're going to make one, work on one, which you're going to spend some time on, but with the other subjects which might need um, attention, that has to come later. But what, we're, what we could do in the meantime is pull up some high-quality texts that um, teachers can use uh, to read to children, get them talking about it, and then maybe they do a bit of writing from it. So I think that we can, and, and that's kind of holding, that's holding it for the time being, and then we'll come back and refine it. I think the other thing to say is that um, some documents, beyond English, maths, and science, um, for the other national curriculum documents, it needs the content is there to be taught across a key stage. So that's over four years. So as long as the children are taught that, within the four years, not obviously in the summer term of year six, that's leaving it a bit late, but at some point in the four years, they're going to be okay. They are going to be okay. Because what mm. worries me is that um, people try to do too much. So there's lots of um, uh, outsourcing of resources to unreliable websites um, yeah. to, fill in, to fill in the gaps. Mm. And... That is what I call Jackson Pollocking the curriculum. So we just we just pull down all this stuff. We don't have time to quality assure it, so there's quite a few gaps in it. Quite a lot of it is, is um, colouring in. I'm not suggesting anyone this call would do that, but I'm afraid I've seen a lot of that. It's better not to do don't don't give children an outline of a mosque and tell them they're going to design it and basically it's colouring in it. It's better that they don't have it. Seriously. <laughs> But then, um, and then over time, to find some great sources of mosques 
um, you know, through the Khan Academy or through the Museum with No Frontiers. But the thing is that um, I can't find all that out you know, in one evening when I'm not marking. So for me, this is a, uh, it's, it's one of the fundamental differences between primary and secondary. They work really, really hard, but in different ways. And the pressures are equal, but they're different. But it's a leadership issue to work. So either the head or deputy is working, or senior leader is working with colleagues to make those priorities. So it could be, let's say it's geography and history, and maybe the history is pretty strong. So we're just going to leave that ticking over. We'll refine it later. But we'll we'll do some work on the geography. And, and we kind of, kind of develop it as we teach it. Um, and, you know, I think one of the most important things I would say in relation to picking up, you know, refine, you know, in a coordinator's role um, is that we make sure we go to the authentic sources for that material. So that means going to things like, in history, the British, uh, the British Museum, um, in geography, going to the, in science, going to the Science Museum, as well as the uh, subject associations. So it's quite a long-winded way of saying, let's just pace ourselves. Let's pull up some really high-quality text. It's one of the reasons why I'm um, adding this additional web page to my existing website, so that people will have some suggestions that we know kids are likely to learn something from it, even if a full scheme of work isn't in place. So that that would... I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm saying we've got to look after ourselves first, because if we pace ourselves properly, we're more likely to keep the momentum going. So I hope that helps. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it does, because mm. Joe's just texted and said, um, thank you, that's such great advice. Um, we're going to have to take another break for the news and the ads. Um, when we come back, I'm going to put this question to both of you. Is We've talked about um, the broad and balanced curriculum. Uh, what about the knowledge-rich curriculum. Uh, for example, what does a knowledge-rich English curriculum look like beyond English literature? Um, or what does a knowledge-rich curriculum mean for your subjects? So news first, and then we'll come back and hear John and Mary, Mary's ideas on this, on this question. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls' School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, 
uplearn.co.uk. Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland full, free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. The NAS UWT Union has reported that pressure on teachers across Wales is increasing as the exam season approaches. Neil Butler from the Union said, I see and speak to teachers most days, and they report to me that they are absolutely exhausted. On top of this, the Welsh Government has said we're launching into an entirely new curriculum in September. It's been very difficult to be able to concentrate on those needs when basically holding the whole ship together has been the priority. There's a lot of work being done on the mental health and well-being of the learners, but precious little on teachers and support staff. And I think the response will be that a lot of teachers will just get out. The Education Minister, Jeremy Miles, explained that teachers have been asked to do more than during normal times and said, we've set ourselves the goal of trying to give a couple of weeks notice of changes when that's been possible. But there have been times when that just wasn't possible. I do recognise how challenging this is. In England, Ofqual has stated that grade boundaries were likely to be lowered to account for the loss of learning. An East Midlands education body has however indicated that this may not be the most effective way to mitigate the impact of the pandemic. Nick Rain, Senior Regional Officer at the National Education Union East Midlands said, My interpretation was somewhat different. What they're going to do is they're giving people more vindication of what may or may not be on the examinations because students have missed so much. Some of the reports in newspapers are actually inaccurate. I mean, I don't think anyone reasonable 
is going to suggest when students have missed weeks and weeks and weeks in cases of learning with a teacher, that they're going to be able to sit exactly the same examination as people in previous years who didn't. Obviously, it just doesn't make any common sense, so that's the reality of the situation. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, for some it's half term, for others there's another week to wait. Today I'm going to talk about a YouTube hack. We all know there are some great explanation videos out there, but sometimes we just want to use a short clip, not the whole thing. Did you know you can save a link to start at a time that you specify? If you didn't, here's the simplest way to do it. Go to the YouTube video you want and pause where you want to start. Hover the pointer over the red line that shows where you're up to in the video and a red circle will appear. Right click on the red circle and a menu pops up. On the menu, select copy video URL at current time. Now you have a link that will take you to that time in the video. Okay, now we can start a video at any time we want. There is a way to use this to our advantage. I don't know about you, but the ads at the start of some clips can be rather annoying. If you start your video one second in, using the method just described, more often than not, you'll avoid having to sit through the adverts. Please remember to keep yourself safe. Anyone can upload anything to sites like YouTube. Please make sure you have watched the whole clip yourself before playing it in the classroom. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. Um, this is Teachers Talk Radio. I'm Noreen Khalid and I have John and Mary with me and we have been uh, discussing and talking about curriculum. And, and time has just flown by. We've had such fascinating conversations. Thank you, John, and thank you, Mary. It's been really, really great. Um, for the last five minutes, um, just a question I asked just before we went to the break. Um, what is a knowledge-rich curriculum? And uh, for example, what does a knowledge-rich English curriculum uh, look like beyond English literature? Gosh. Gosh. I'm, I'm happy, I'm happy to, to kick off with a few thoughts. Go on. And I'll try and be brief because we've only got five minutes. And that is that um, it's a bit like the broad and balanced curriculum. Mm. Why would you want uh, something that has, uh, is, is knowledge poor? Um, so <laughs> it is a, a remarkable fact that people like knowing stuff. <laughs> so why? We, so I think we can tap into that. That is, uh, you know, just give them some rich, interesting stuff. Don't degrade it. Don't think they can't cope. Um, in terms of English, and my background isn't English. Mine is um, languages and, and, and religious education. But I think. Um, you know, one of the things I have found in terms of talking to colleagues in, in the English is that, you know, children do need a really rich, interesting diet. And I think one of the things particularly to be mindful of in uh, secondary is that they there aren't on the programmes of study texts which have actually been taught in primary. Mm. That is a bit of a waste of time. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, and so that, again, is why transition and knowing what um, standards are like in, in primary is, is really important. So um, I, th- I, think, I think knowledge rich is, is kind of, uh, you know, branded as though it's something extraordinary. I don't think it is. Um, I think what is different is the, um, the intentionality about much of this in, fa- in, in terms of particularly of sequencing. So what are going to be, um, to, to make it coherent, so what are going to be some of the big ideas that we're going to encounter, children are going to encounter in the time that they're at school? So in history, it might be civilization, it might be something to do with geomorphology and in geography. So make sure that that um, is there across the years uh, with different examples around it. Um, but I think uh, one of the things I would say, and one of the biggest caveats to be mindful of is um, thinking that children can't cope. And particularly for those children who might be identified as slower starters. Um, but there's just so much scope and, you know, a joyful thing to teach, uh, but not to, turn, not to atomize it into uh, parsing everything to the nth degree. Let the text be the beating heart of the lesson, as the amazing Andy Tharby says. Thank End you. of. <laughs> Thank you, Mary. That, that was wonderful. Um, John, um, uh, last, I, I wrote, shall I give I wrote, you another question to give? No, no, no. I, I'm really, really important about this. I, I wrote a blog quite a, a year ago, probably now, mm-hmm. and I was teaching the art of rhetoric in year nine English. And we were looking at, uh, we'd looked at Friends, Roman, Countrymen's, mm-hmm. Let Me Your Ears, that speech by Mark Anthony. Um, and We'd got on, we were about to begin to teach uh, Churchill's, we're fighting on the beaches, we're fighting on the landing craft speech. And I asked a girl what she, what she remembered and what Mark Anthony was saying. And she said, well, I, I can't remember, sir, because I didn't really understand any of the words. And it struck me at that moment that I'd, I'd gone through the text far too quickly. 30 year nines in front of me in rows, middle of the pandemic. Um, so we spent 20 minutes just going through all the words that uh, the students didn't understand in the Churchill speech. And it got above the 5% threshold for complete um, comprehension of the, of the passage. And you go back to the stuff that Alex quickly always quotes about, always cites about that. And we spent a grindy hour working through making sure that children understood every word of the text. And it wasn't tedious and it wasn't actually grindy because they really enjoyed understanding what they were reading, right? right? And it was a challenging text and they loved it. And a girl next lesson brought in, because we'd mentioned Dunkirk, we brought it, she brought in her great uncle's handwritten testimony of being at Dunkirk. And it's one of those moments when you, you read it out to the class, um, this bloke waiting to be picked up on the beach, people dying around him, just unbelievably live stuff. And I can still feel uh, the back of my neck prickle um, thinking about that moment. And so when you teach a really rich, knowledge-rich, really rich curriculum that's exciting, you take those opportunities, there's nothing beats it. And, you know, children deserve that richness and they, you know, they deserve to be really challenged and ambitious. And it would have been far easier for me to have gone on, not done any of that stuff, and just set them a task to write me a persuasive letter about why I should allow mobile phones in schools, which would have been unbelievably tedious. Um, And instead, they learned something, and they loved it. 
Thank you. Thank you. It's, I mean, it, it is a cliche, but children are sponges, aren't they? And the more you, you give it. them, the more they will, they will absorb and the more, um, the more um, love they get developed for the subject. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. The time has, has flown by. I, I, you know, uh, I just looked at my watch thinking it, I still had about half an hour to go, but it, I don't. It's over. I know. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's because you two have been absolutely brilliant. You've got, you've said, you've told us so much about it. You've covered so much content. So I'm really, really grateful. Not only have you given up your Wednesday evening and, and night, in fact, now, but you've been really, really, um, you know, you've really given us lots to think about and, and, and work over. So thank you, John, and thank you, Mary. And, um, Good night, and I'll let you get on with your evening. Thanks, Noreen. Thank you, John. A absolute Bye. pleasure. Thank you, then. Thanks, Thank Noreen. Thank Bye, you. then. Bye. 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 You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.